This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Samantha Nogueira Joyce, who is the author of the book, Afro-Brazilians and Telenovelas, Social, Political, and Economic Realities, published by Lexington Books. Dr. Nogueira Joyce, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy that you're here as well. And I'm really happy to talk about your book, which is one of my favorite topics on television in Brazil. And so I've been a follower of your work for some time. And you wrote your previous book was Telenovelas and the Myth of Racial Democracy. But today, of course, we're talking about Afro-Brazilians and telenovelas. So can you tell us about yourself and tell us how you came to write this book? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you for asking. And I will be referring back to that book every now and then. Um, But so let me give you a a long answer, because knowing who I am is what guides my research. My identity is very much tied to my research. So my name is Samantha Nogueira Joyce. I'm a multiracial Brazilian. I am married to an Irish American man, and I have two American kids, or a Brazilian American. Um, I'm also someone who embodies several ethnic and racial identities, having grown up in Brazil and lived a life of white privilege, um, even though my family is racially diverse and mixed, and in fact, descend from enslaved people. I am phenotypically white in Brazil anyway. We can talk about that. Um, And I grew up lower middle class. I've lived here in the U.S. for half of my life. I work at St. Mary's College of California um, as this ambiguous other. I have light skin, brown eyes, long brown hair. Um, I have an obvious accent. I dress, let's call it loud, Um, And I have an American name, Samantha Joyce. So on a daily basis, I am mistaken for being Mexican, French, Greek. Um, I have been mistaken at um, international academic conferences by Brazilians to be American. (laughs) I have been questioned whether I'm black, white, brown by others and myself. And I have been always invested and interested in social equality and social change, especially in regards to its relationship with the media. Um, 
I grew up equally terrified and mesmerized by media. I'll give you um, an example. So I have vivid memories of watching TV programs as a child in Brazil that had a warning by the federal censors, either stating that the show had been approved for that time slot, so you could read on the screen, livre, right, free, meaning anyone could watch. Um, but I also remember warnings saying the show was inappropriate or censored for minors. So Brazil was under a military dictatorship when I was a child from 64 to 85. Um, and I was actually, I remember my um, TV viewing experience as being one where sometime, sometimes I was afraid that censors would come knocking at my door and arrest my parents because I was watching something forbidden or illegal. Um, on the other hand, I felt really hopeful when in the mid 80s, I saw on TV political protests and the political opening that was televised, you know, on the news. And I saw people who this is a very vivid memory I have. People who were in exile coming back to Brazil. Um, it was really kind of this magical moment. And I also remember the viewing experience with, you know, my mom who was watching that as well. And you could see people at the airport coming down the stairs of the airplane, you know, um, there weren't any jet bridges and they were walking outside from the plane and these memories I have about the media and about the restrictions involved, especially in television, but also a lot of potential and possibilities offered through media. So I grew up dreaming of being a journalist and I did get a BA in journalism and worked in the profession for a few years before getting a master's degree in radio and television, of course, <laughs> and then later a PhD in media studies. So I knew I wanted to focus my work on this relationship between media and social change, but matters regarding racial identity and representation only became more intriguing to me and really salient to me when I started to physically embody perceived stereotypes regarding race and identity and ethnicity. So it's a bit embarrassing um, and, you know, very humbling to confess that it shows that I had been living my life under this white privilege. Um, I never really thought about my racial identity until I could not not think about it. Um, but, and this is more in line with my work, it also shows this Brazilian discourse of racial democracy um, that kind of permeates Brazil, which we'll talk more about later what that, what that means exactly. But it's still very ingrained uh, in Brazilian society and in my own family in many ways. So all of these things that make up who I am you know, coupled with the fact that I'm very curious and, yes, an avid media consumer, especially television, these are all things that are tied to not just answering your question, but also how I came to write this book, Afro-Brazilian in telenovelas. So um, the social construction, the ways in which we imagine race, the possibilities and the limitations of this social construction of race through representation is something that I'm curious about. 
and wanted to investigate, but also to see telenovelas as a place of opportunity and not just pessimism. So before I I get to the, the this exact book, let me just talk about a little bit about the book you mentioned before, Brazilian Telenovelas and the Myth of Racial Democracy, because it it is the stepping stone for the current research. So in that book, I had focused on the telenovela Duas Caras or Two Faces, which aired in 2008. It was a very particular telenovela because it was the first time that TV Globo had a black hero in a telenovela. Um, and he was described in the official website for the show as the hero of the show, right? So it was a very different telenovela. And it also, in the plot, freely addressed um, racism and race matters. It was part of the central plot. The dialogues were very heavily focused on these discussions. And it was also the first time in history where the the writer of the show, Aguinaldo Silva, he kept a blog where he would discuss the public's reaction to his racist dialogues and the and the racist plot. But he, he would engage with viewers, but also with, you know, media writers um, about the show. So it really ignited discussions, broader discussions about racism. So... Um, I want to say that I look at representation as a negotiation and a consequence of the social political zeitgeist in which these texts are produced, but also consumed, right? So when this telenovela aired in 2008, the environment was one of a progressive social movement in Brazil. So back then, Lula, our current president, was the president. Um, and so I was, you know, locating the text in in, in this environment where um, it's a progressive moment in Brazil and these discussions in the telenovela contribute to a broader discussions about race. So I was very optimistic then, as were many people, and I thought, wow, this is going to open doors to different types of representation in Brazil. But, okay, finally, to <laughs> finish answering your question, um, in Afro-Brazilians in telenovelas, I'm once again looking at representation of Blacks in Brazil. Um, I also do a comparison with the U.S. every now and then. Uh, but I'm looking at O Segundo Sol, The Second Sun, this other telenovela that came 10 years later. So 10 years after we have, yay, the first Black hero in a telenovela, we now are faced with this new telenovela that is going to air in 2018, and it's set in Bahia, which is a state in the northeast of Brazil that has the largest black population in Brazil. And, you know, we are in the middle of a global movement of Black Lives Matter, but this telenovela was practically erasing all blacks from its narrative and from the cast. So that was a blow to me and many others, as you can imagine. Um, so I went from here and I started this investigation. Again, I'm not just looking at the show itself. I'm looking at what's happening in Brazil politically. Um, and, you know, 2018 is a time where now we have a repressive government under then President Jair Bolsonaro, known as the Trump of the tropics. Um, so I'm looking at all of these things combined. 
Um, I investigate these relationships and try to offer insights as far as media and social change, especially in its relationship to the re representation of race, um, especially Blacks. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is the context in which this book came about. Great. Thank you so much for that um, introduction to the to the book and to yourself. Um, I think that's really important to talk about your background and also the the context for the book um, and the the previous book that that you know preceded it, which we'll also talk about a little bit in the in the interview. And so I wondered, um, your book, as you said, Afro-Brazilians and Telenovelas examines representations of Black of black characters in the telenovela Segunda Sol or Second Son. And I'll just use the English word, English term Second Son. Um, and so I wondered if you could tell us about the context of telenovelas in Brazil. What role do they play? What forms do they take? Um, you know, how are they different from soap operas in the United States, for example? And so just, you know, just give us a little bit of this context of, you know, the importance of telenovelas in Brazil's television landscape. Mm-hmm. Um so happy to do that. <laughs> uh, so generally speaking, we can say that soap operas and telenovelas are like distant relatives, right? Or distant cousins, let's call it. They have the same roots, uh, but th they have different outcomes and development. They are both melodramatic in structure, right? They came from melodramas. And they were originally thought of as a type of women's programming, although that's no longer true about Brazilian telenovelas anyway, which have an extremely diverse demographic. They both initially had sponsorships that reflected this demographic, right? So in other words, the soap in soap opera literally comes from the type of sponsors of the show, um, such as Palmolive, for example. Um, the production and programming of soap operas and telenovelas are also extremely different. So think daytime in the United States versus nighttime or primetime in Brazil. Although not, you know, nowadays the notion of primetime is a little different um, with streaming and all that. Um, but they both air several days of the week with Brazilian telenovelas airing six days of the week. But the biggest distinction has to do with a high investment in production in the case of Brazilian telenovelas. So they have the highest paid actors, writers, producers, um, special effects. They have cross-media integration. So also in a way, most of the population, while they may say that they don't watch telenovelas, they know what they're about. Um, <laughs> think you've been to Brazil, you know that they know the narrative, they know who the actors are, you know, they know the plot. I couldn't really tell you anything about the current plot of American soap operas, but I can tell you about several plots of several telenovelas um, that are going on in Brazil right now, even though I'm actively just watching one. Um, another characteristic is that Brazilian telenovelas tend to always have a happy ending um, instead of lasting for decades and decades. Unlike U.S. soap operas, telenovelas are not purely melodramas, right? And they're still thriving. Um, the storylines will comment directly on current events. You know, sometimes a Monday is a Monday um, in a telenovela. They're very current and up to date. 
and people of all social class, race, and gender, they, they're all watching um, telenovelas. And it's important to know that they're not just this TV show that is set in, you know, in a vacuum. They do bring in social and political issues to the forefront of public debate. Um, they're extremely important because they penetrate global markets with a proven successful commercial product. TV Global doesn't only dominate the Brazilian market, but they dominate the international market for telenovelas as well. They're a huge monopoly. They rely on virtual and horizontal integration. So, for example, Global's broadcast signal in Brazil can be picked up in 99.5% of the Brazilian territory. And for over 30 years, its own international channel, Globo Internacional, has distributed programs to hundreds of countries, over 300 telenovelas. And they actually reach an average audience of 100 million viewers worldwide every day. Um, so another very particular characteristic of Brazilian telenovelas is what we call an open text. Because telenovelas are produced weekly and even daily, sometimes they are recording um, an episode that will air later that night, any last minute changes to the plot can be made. So if there's any kind of commotion or public discontent or any controversies, this ongoing daily production of telenovelas um, allow writers to change it literally up to the last minute. So this is the open text. It's a, a program that is in direct and constant conversation and negotiation with the audiences that watch them and, and the producers who make them. Um, and so it's interesting that even with competition of streaming services like Netflix, for example, this traditional telenovela genre is still the number one locally produced and consumed in Brazil. And of course, it gathers a big chunk of potential consumers to sell to advertisers um, wherever this telenovela airs. But more than this capitalist consumer product that sells, you know, several capitalist consumer things, Brazilian telenovelas are, what I'm saying um, in the book, a site of negotiation and creation of identity. They're a place for struggle over signification that goes beyond a marketplace. Um, and they're actually a place to activate dialogue um, towards social change. So they hold a, an importance in Brazil, but also as a global product, right, that opens up these alternative spaces of dialogue. Um, in, the, in my case, the case of my research about race and racism. Um, in, in, so in other sections of society, so uh, in daily conversations, but also news programs, right, specialized media outlets, social media Etc. Sometimes even before they air, they're very lucrative. Um, they are exported to hundreds of countries. And actually, in the past ten years, the top ten rated shows in Brazil were all telenovelas. Not only were they telenovelas, but they're all TV global telenovelas. And then on an international scale, they have also been the number one most popular show in 
Spain, United States, Peru, Portugal, and Chile, um, many countries. So I think it's important for us to look at them as the huge um, media product that they are, right? But beyond this marketplace value, they are a site of mediations where this struggle for signification, for meaning, for what it means to be something um, is produced and consumed. So I'll finish answering your question by saying that because they're so popular and because of the, the reach that they have, sometimes they can end up dictating roles by telling stories that represent them, right? So the portrayal, or in the case of this, what um, started this research, lack of portrayal of Blacks is highly significant because the, the genre contributes to this general cultural acceptance and understanding um, of what it means to be Black, for example. And it opens up real-life possibilities to a segment of the population that traditionally faces discrimination not only on screen, but off screen as well. Yeah, thank you. That context is so important because when I first um, when I first went to Brazil in, I think, 2004, um, I lived with a host mother in Rio de Janeiro, and I, had, I was there to learn Portuguese, and I had already taken uh, Portuguese lessons in the United States, and, and I'd also already studied Spanish, but I went to Brazil and I would sit with my host mother and watch, you know, telenovelas with her every evening. And she encouraged me to watch them because she, she said, well, it'll help you with, you know, with listening. Um, and so, and I thought, oh, telenovelas, why? And and then of course I would sit there and watch with her every evening and I would get into it. And, um, whenever I would miss it, I'd come, ho- come home and I'd say, oh my gosh, what happened with so-and-so? You know, did they learn the, the secret of XYZ? So I got totally taken in with them as well. And they helped me uh, improve my Portuguese and, you know, initiate conversations with my host mother and other people. So, um, but of course, everything that you said is, you know, there's so much more important, um, the, the importance that you shared with us is, is critical to understanding, you know, your book as well as, uh, you know, Brazilian culture. So I, I was going to move on to the telenovela that you actually look at in the book, which is Second Son. And I wondered if you could just tell us something about the telenovela, because it is the, the main, you know, focus of the book. Um, what is the general plot of Second Son? And, you know, why did you pick this particular one to focus on in the book? Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, this telenovela aired in 2018, and it was the the prime time 9 p.m. slot. And again, it was set in Bahia, the northeastern state in Brazil with the highest Black population. Um, and the plot starts in the 90s, and then and it goes on like that for a few weeks and then it takes a leap 20 years into the let's call it future which now is the past because it was 2018 um so on the surface the main plot of the program is very fantastical you know similar to melodramas of its kind um it focuses on um a white singer in a love triangle you know, false accusations of crimes, reclaiming one's love and legal innocence, etc. But the other main subplot is about a black mother, a maid who has two sons, 
one who is um, phenotypically black and one who is phenotypically white. Zepha is the name of the maid. And she gives, and you know, if you were reading my book, gives would be inside quotation marks, um, her white son, Edgar Ataiji, to be raised by the family that she works for. Um, I have to mention that the white boss who raised her kid is actually the kid's father. Yes, melodrama, right? (laughs) But second son is much more than this. Um, Remember, there are dozens of cast members in a telenovela. This one had 35 actors. So therefore, these there are three main storylines that somehow connect. Uh, although for any promo for the show, the, the white cast was the main cast. We can, I am focusing on the, the main black characters. So I look at Second Son as a telenovela that actually illustrates a lingering racism in Brazil and reasserts the program's role in this process of racial identity formation. Um, Again, pointing out that the idea of racial democracy is a myth. So when I say racial democracy, I'm referring to this idea that miscegenation was historically encouraged in Brazil. Um, In other words, it was miscegenation was associated with this idea that Brazil, which was a colony of Portugal, was created with a new race, the Brazilians. So as a consequence of this, racial and cultural homogeneity would prevail, overcome in a new way any type of racial division. Um, This is the context in which racial democracy as an ideal was born. Of course, this never happened. Um, And it is, in fact, a very racist ideology to begin with, since it relates on this concept of whitening through miscegenation. Um, More importantly, though, we have to say that until very recently, it hindered any discussions and measures to prevent racism, including structural racism, because supposedly it's a problem that is inexistent in Brazil. So how does this melodramatic, extraordinarily fantastical storyline relate to productive discussions about race and racism. Um, This is what I am looking at with this book, and this is why I picked this specific telenovela. Um, Let me explain. It's set in Bahia, right? The main protagonists are white. And then it, it was this interesting thing that happened when TV Global released just a promo for Second Son um, set in Bahia. When we watch this clip, there are the names of 27 actors and faces on the clip, but only three of them were Black, and only one Black actor received airtime. Also, of the totality of actors in the show, 35 actors, only five were Black. Again, 76% of residents of Bahia declare themselves to be black or brown. So this made me want to think about it. Uh, It made a lot of people um, stop and complain, right? Uh, Like, what is going on here? This, This was the starting point of the research, a promo for the show. 
Yeah, great. I remember when the when the show first came out as well, and all of the uproar around it's um, around the promo that you mentioned. And so you take us, you know, into the into the telenovela, um, into its plots, and as you said, you focus on the black characters, and you make this important point that black characters and subjects um, are represented as complex, and so you know they embody stereotypes, but then they also create these openings for important discussions around race and racism um, as you as you say there's this negotiation you know for identity in the in the text and so one of the characters you talk about is Zepha who you just previously mentioned um, and she's a woman in the in the telenovela and so I wondered if you could just share some of the arguments that you make about her character mm-hmm. so one of the chapters in the book is titled her body baby mama to mammy and in this chapter, I am examining the representation of Zepha. So she is an aging Afro-Brazilian maid who has lived and worked her entire life for a successful and traditional white family in Bahia, the Ataíde family. This character slash textual analysis is part of a conversation um, about the representation of Blacks in Brazil with other scholarly work there, but also between the United States and Brazil um, and Brazilian visual media. So I'm in conversation with, you know, my previous book, but also Joel Zito Araújo's Denying Brazil, where he looks at telenovelas, representations of Blacks between the 19 between the 60s to the 90s so looking at history is extremely important right looking at how she's represented now but also how characters like her have been historically represented how how did we get here and where do we go from here these are always guiding questions for my work um also because of the nature of this comparative work between US and Brazil I'm also um, really in conversation with Donald Bogle's book, Tom's, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. So Zepha, um, these are kind of uh, frameworks for looking at Zepha. So she was very interesting because she embodied literally in her physical body and in the narrative two lingering stereotypical tropes of representing Black women the either or, and she was both. So either young and hypersexual or old and asexual. As I mentioned, Second Son is that story that spans two decades with jumps between present and and past. Um, And it at times uses different actors to portray younger versions of themselves. At other times, we're left to imagine what these characters look like based on the narratives and backstories that are provided to us as viewers of the program about them. Zepha is one of these characters who, um, as far as the narrative goes, she was present in all phases of telenovela, from a, a you know younger Zepha to aging Zepha, um, and always working for the same family as a maid, but it's a lot more than that, right? So in the present time of the telenovela, 2018, she can be described as Bogle's mammy or Araujo's mamãe, mother, the the mother of all. She's extremely nurturing. She's subservient. 
Zephyr is at this stage in her life, excuse me, the aging black woman and a textbook representation of a mammy. She's heavier set. She's matronly. She's desexualized. She's extremely lovingly. She's non-threatening for most of the narrative. However, let's remember that part of the narrative in this telenovela has to do with the two brothers, the quote black and white brother, Hobe Havau, who is black, and then Edgar Ataiji, who is white, even though they have the same exact parents, the black mother, Zefa, and the white father, Severo Ataiji. So as a young black female body, Zefa was represented as hypersexual. Um, so here, well, before I classify her as mulata, which I do in the book, I have just a couple of things I, I'd like to say regarding the power of words, um, the changing of meaning of words, and claiming and reclaiming words. So this book is also in conversation with Jasmine Mitchell's Imagining the Mulata, which came out in 2020 where she investigates the development and exploitation of the mulata figure in Brazilian and U.S. popular culture. I loved that book. Um, I was so thrilled to be able to have this conversation with it. However, the term mulata itself, as far as meanings, um, not just in the media, but it serves as a go-to. It stands in for this young, hypersexual, available body, amongst other things. But I want to point out that this is a framework which we are using to analyze this character um, and a representational go-to, right? But I feel the need to point out that I would not use the term to refer to anyone in real life because it's a racist term and it's been highlighted recently in Brazil by Black activists for its racist connotations. So mula is a Portuguese word that means mule which is the hybrid offspring of a horse and a donkey. So I just wanted to take a little detour um, to talk about that. So Zepha embodies the mulata trope, right? This stereotype as a maid in the Ataiji house. Um, she was expected to serve her boss in the master bedroom, pun intended, and <laughs> gives her white-skinned son to be raised as the family's heir since the matriarch of the family couldn't bear children. So there's a lot going on um, with her storyline. And hopefully I, I gave you just enough to um, maybe make um, listeners want to run and buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because not only does the analysis, you know, make the book interesting, but of course, the fact that you're analyzing telenovelas, which are themselves, you know, the plots and everything are also very interesting. So people will really enjoy both those aspects of the book um, as well. And so I can definitely recommend that. Um, and also when you mentioned uh, Jasmine Mitchell's work, I'm also a fan of hers as well. So I was delighted to see her reference in the book and that you're in conversation with her. Um, 
And so you, as you mentioned, um, the Zephyr character was in the chapter about women. Um, and then you have another chapter where you look at men characters um, in the book. And you have the one of the male characters you look at is Hoberval, who is a villain. Um, and he's uh, Zephyr's son that was raised by her. And um, he's presented as um, hypersexual in the telenovela. And, but he also is this character who like discusses racism and Brazil's colonial history. And so I wondered if you could tell us um, a bit about this, this character and how you analyze him and his relationship to race and, and racism. Mm-hmm. So the majority of his dialogues, as you mentioned, revolve around lingering historical processes of slavery um, and racism. In other words, it's about the legacy of slavery in Brazil. So, for example, um, Roberval, who is black, questions his mother about having, you know, served, this is the language he uses, served her boss sexually um, after he learns with the audience, right, that Zepha gave her white son away to be raised as rich and white. Um, while he was literally raised in the kitchen and now works as the driver for his family. Um, We learn about this with Hobehavau in a conversation that is um, like a a deathbed confessional that Claudine, the the matriarch, the white matriarch, has with um, Zepha. And and later Hobehval, but it, it's interesting because in the dialogue, you know, Zepha refers to her boss Claudine Ataigi as madam, and Claudine refers to Zepha as friend. Um, so Zepha's role in the house as someone is something that um, Hobehval questions, and therefore we question as an audience, right? She is not only somebody who was sexually harassed, right? But she was also exploited sexually and reproductively as she gives her white son to her employers to raise as their own. Um, so Hobehval helps us to think about Zepha fulfilling the, again, hypersexual and sexually available stereotype of the mulatta when um, Claudine talks about her having helped her, thanking her, thank you for helping me by having sex with my husband all of those years. Without your help, Zepha, um, I could not have been able to handle my husband's sexual appetite. So when Hobehval questions his mother's actions. Um, He allows us as audience members to do so as well, right? And so we are reflecting on Afro-Brazilians' actual history and social political locations of Blacks. Zepha represents the sexual exploitation and economic marginalization of characters and people of African descent in Brazil. So also relating to Hobehval's dialogues, he often refers to his bosses as his masters um, and to the maid quarters as senzala, the Portuguese word for the, quote, slave quarters. Um, and when the the white matriarch Claudine Ataigi and his black mother Zefa tr- tried to portray 
the family as a, a happy mixed family, you know, who just happened to occupy different spaces in the home, totally ignoring all of the other very problematic structures. Robert Val is the one who reminds us as audience members and then his mom in the telenovela that they are mixed or a family. Um, we're dealing with a very complicated hierarchical structure a power relationship that is marked by race, by class, by gender imbalance and oppression. And again, he only learns this truth about the family when he's in his 30s as a deathbed confession by his boss. Um, just one more thing I want to point out about Roberval, Severo, Ataíde, and Zefa is that they have several conversations pertaining to this storyline involving two biological brothers that are constructed as racially different, white and black, when biologically they are the same. So it reminds us um, that race is a social and not a biological term that has very real consequences in the fictional as well as the real world. Yeah, great. Thank you for that um, for that analysis of that of the character and those different. Um, conversations that are going on in the telenovela and in your in what you've talked about it also made me think about the name of the telenovela second sun and even though it's sun s-u-n like the sun in the sky it made me think of like s-o-n second sun like this play on on the english word because you know again they're the two sons and this and the one son was there they were separated as well so you know you have like kind of like a second sun like you know, S-O-N as well, which I don't know if that was intended or not in the name of the telenovela. You know, it doesn't really matter because as it occupies space in the U.S., that's one of the meanings that we can draw, right, from it, Um, which is great. It's that that is what I'm doing here, looking at meanings that come from this message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, yeah, I really like it. And I mean, and this, this thing makes me, makes me think of like names and I always look at the names of films and other programs in Brazil and how they translate them into English because they're very deliberate because um, it's not always a direct you know translation, as I'm sure you know. Um, and so you but you make this really interesting point about the names of characters in the telenovela. And I've never this is something I've never realized in watching telenovelas um, is that you notice these differences between black and white characters names. And so I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. And um, what are the differences in black and white characters names and what do they mean? This is actually one of my favorite findings <laughs> in the book, because it's so in our face and we don't see it. You know what I mean? Um, I found it so interesting and so telling. Um, So perhaps a more astute listener um, of the podcast may have picked up on the fact that when I refer to the white characters, I refer to them um, by their first and last name or family name. And not only do they have a family name, but these are extremely European sounding names. So Claudine Ataigi. And if you know any Portuguese, you know, the, the TH is not very common in, in, in Ataigi, right? And the Y isn't either. So Claudine Ataigi, Severo Ataigi, Edgar Ataigi. But our black characters, Zefa and Roberval, don't have a last name. 
This is never mentioned in the storyline. Nobody hears their last name. It's not in any dialogue. It's not even in the character description in the official website for the telenovela. It's simply non-existent. It's not talked about. It's not questioned. It, it just is, right? Why would they need a last name? Um, so research showed that this is another lingering stereotype in telenovelas as well as Black characters go. So Blacks usually have a first name or a nickname. For example, in this telenovela, they refer to Zefa as Zefinha a lot. And this suffix, Inha, it can mean endearing, but it also means small, tiny, right? On the other hand, whites almost always have a last name that is prominently featured in narratives. So what's in a name, right? In this case, the importance or lack of importance of familial references is a question that is very relevant from a philosophical point of view, social, um, scientific, right? The fact that Black characters lack a proper family name in these shows is yet another tool of dehumanization, objectification, oppression, and it shouldn't go unnoticed. Um, there's a scene in the telenovela where Hobie Haval appears to, to have accomplished this power reversal where his white father, Severo Ataíde, is in jail. And so Hobie Haval goes to visit him in jail thinking, I win. Um, as a villain, that was his purpose, was to put his father in jail. Yes, telenovela, let's remember that. <laughs> um, but th this issue comes up, right? In other words, the importance of names or how names are used, especially family names and, and their connection to humanity, to validity, to respect. So the lack of a proper name serves as a powerful aid to objectify black bodies. It renders them this characteristic of less than, so less than human, less than worthy, um, etc. In this specific scene in jail, Severo Ataíde uses his family name to humiliate, subjugate, and oppress. So even in that position where he is right now, where he's in jail, he's, he's still, he still has his power and privilege. It goes like this. Hobeval thinks about being victorious, right? He's, he, he did it. He proved that his dad was a crook, um, amongst other things. And his dad is in jail because of white collar crimes. But Severo Ataíde tells him, there will be no victory today. No matter where I am um, or how much money I have, I will always be Severo Ataíde. He says, he says, I am a descendant of Spaniards, a family that arrived here in the 1500s. Um, he says his family has ruled the state of Bahia ever since Bahia has existed. So this dialogue is reminding viewers of the Brazilian history of white colonization and slavery. Um, in addition to this lingering power imbalance of races, the legacy of slavery, right? His white family has ruled Bahia since it began. Um, but also the power associated with a family name or a lack of power and, and recognition, lack of value. As the scene goes on, 
Roberval tries to ridicule Severo Ataide again by saying that, oh, you have, you know, he's mocking him. You have so much power. You're in jail, you know, calls him a colonizer. Um, but his white father replies something like, look, boy, you can put on all your fancy clothes. You know, you can buy the most expensive car. You can live at a palace with a hundred workers, but you will always be a bastard n-word equivalent um and then he says it again nothing but a bastard so i use this scene to highlight the specific type of racial oppression that as we said hasn't really been addressed before with the lack of proper name and this dialogue it really sparked a lot of discussion online and in social media, uh, news articles about racism and, and race relations. It, it was talked about as far as the legacy of slavery, although the, the naming part wasn't addressed so much, but it does go back kind of full circle to all of these things we've been discussing today, which um, I find fascinating and invigorating, right? How um, the plot can trigger things that... Um, outside of, of the plot. So it makes me mad, but also very hopeful. Um, that's the complicated world of telenovelas. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, that is fascinating how the telenovela, it tries to be this critic of colonialism and racism, but then ends up, you know, uh, being a perpetuator of it as well, seemingly un unknowingly with this idea of the name, but also with the characters, as you point out, but, um, but also with this, this aspect of the naming, which I've never, never noticed. So that's such, such an important insight that you bring to the, to the study of these, of these characters um, and the genre. Um, and so the, you mentioned this, the, so there was quite a bit of activism and um, uh, attention brought to Second Son through uh, social media. And, you know, and that's, it's because of usually the small number of black characters in the cast, which contrasts with Bahia, where, you know, the majority of the population is black and brown, which you, you've mentioned. Um, and so whenever I talk about this telenovela, sometimes I present about it and, uh, and when I'm talking about my research and I use this article from the guardian that talks about second son and it's, it's a, an, an article in English. And so it's, it's even writing for, you know, an audience beyond Brazil talking about the kind of controversy this telenovela generated. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk about the, how the activism um, that the telenovela generated, how did it play out and how did this affect the telenovela? Mm -hmm. So that. I love that because that is actually how I first started reading about it was The Guardian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, as I mentioned, it this is very important, right? It's a story that is set in Bahia um, and it has very few. I'm just going to say it doesn't have any blackness, right? And so when this promo comes out and they usually come out about a month before the new telenovela is going to start. And, you know, you see 27 actors um, that are white and only three are black. And so immediately um, this inspired this internet campaign that became viral. It was hashtag Eu Poderia Estar Em Segundo Sol. I could be in Second Sun. In other words, this representational world sparked activism in the real world and ultimately as we see with the 
you know, the narrative that I am analyzing, it actually changed the outcome of a telenovela. So this campaign, hashtag I could be in second son, uh, was about offering suggestions of several black actors who could have been in that show. Um, and so in light of this criticism that related to racism in casting, TV Global at the time um, put out this official press release saying Global is not racist. You know, we don't ever cast based on race, but uh, we cast on availability of actors that can be involved in a nine month long production is basically what they said. Um and they also claimed that the promo for the show that people were reacting to only reflected the first part of the telenovela and not the entire program, um, hinting that maybe later, you know, Blacks would magically appear um, if, if they haven't appeared so far. And they also, you know, they said, we are listening to your criticism and we're ready to address it and we're looking forward to creating changes, etc. So th- this, is, this is an example of social activism and discussion about the importance of representation. Uh, but I, I should also point out that this initial response by TV Global was not received well because it implied that Black actors were just either not talented enough or just not available, meaning that, yeah, TV Global does not have enough um, available Black actors in its payroll. Right until very recently, TV Global worked on a on this system where they 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 had their actors and they paid them and they were under contract even if they weren't working in a in a you know a production. Uh, but anyway, so this led to a group of TV Global black actors to seek the network, and this was made very public, of course, to question the lack of blacks in telenovelas in general, uh, but specifically this one that was said in Bahia. So then there was another public um, quote by TV Global saying that they realize they have a smaller representativeness than they would like and that they're going to be more flexible um, and, and they were gonna, you know, fix the problem. So this showed this this more flexible stance by TV Globe, where they did acknowledge somewhat um, and implied racism. And so they did bring in more actors, um, and they ended up focusing part of the plot on racial matters. Yeah, that is so fascinating, the power of social media and activism. And so we see it happening in, in Brazil as well as, you know, in other places. So that's that's very encouraging to hear that um, that those changes were made. And as you mentioned, the telenovela is an open text. So they're constantly, um, you know, making new new programming in order to meet the demands of the audience. And so that's it is good to hear that they heard the audience and social media enabled people to raise their voices and then they could make those changes in the plot. Um, and so for the research of the book, um, you undertake a textual analysis of the telenovela. Um, as well as you mentioned earlier, you, you look at the political context in which the telenovela is um, taking place and you link it to these other um, uh, other. Uh, what, what's going on in the in the current context? Um, so I wondered if you could talk about your methods for doing the research, and um, and this is, might be a a, a 
uh, selfish question, but how do you stay up to date on Brazilian television while teaching here in the United States? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Um, so as far as method, I'm comparing and contrasting a couple of telenovelas, right, that aired in two distinct contexts, set 10 years apart, polit- different political contexts. So I'm using textual analysis to identify um, any problematic or lingering portrayals and stereotypes, as well as positive changes and possibilities of um, representation. So I'm looking to determine causes as well as um, to suggest alternatives. And um, I use this multi-layered methodology. So I reply... I, I reply. I, I rely on um, traditional, like British cultural studies, uh, with Stuart Hall's famous encoding decoding model. So this is a, a type of interpretive approach that gives power to audiences to create their own meanings from a text. Right. So um, you talked about how you think Second Son has two meanings. Right. This is the exact. Uh, explanation of Stuart Hall's decoding model. Um, So what we do is we look at um, viewers as having three hypothetical positions that they can adopt as readers of a media text, right? So first, you know, you can have a preferred reading of a text, or this is when the audiences read or decode media messages in ways that were intended by the producer. Um, Second, you can have a negotiated reading. Um, So this allows the viewers, readers, right, to accept the preferred reading of the show, how it was produced, right, and meant to be received. But at the same time, they resist and they modify um, some of the meaning. And this accounts for their uh, own subject experiences. And then finally, you have this oppositional reading of media texts, um, where we understand that the social position of viewers or readers of this text, their ethnicity, their class, their gender, their sexuality, sexuality, et cetera, it's, it situates them in direct opposition to um, mainstream interpretations of that same text. So in other words, Stuart Hall reminds us that Um, media texts are a place for hegemonic struggle, right? There's this negotiation and reconfiguration of um, popular culture and identity. So I am looking at the text itself. It is a textual analysis of the word, um, but also I do it in a a semiotician kind of way. So in other words, the dialogue is important, the narrative and plot. These are my starting points. But then I go beyond this and I look at production elements of how to read this text as well. So what is going along with the traditional text? Sound production, camera angles, editing, the choice of actors, um, costume design. And I also take on this mythological interpretation um, like Roland Barthes. And I look at social political connections between the television text, broader society. I look for ideologies that may be perpetuated or questioned. Um, Who is this text serving or oppressing? And this is done in a couple of ways by looking at history, 
right? But also searching for connections in various um, social slash mediated locations, such as specialized publications or um, news, magazine shows, social media. And so um, from here, I am offering perspectives on the meanings that are possible, right, based on this original text. So, um, for example, I started with the media text, the promo clip for the show, um, and what was not represented. And then looking at media coverage, such as The Guardian, right, of the event, as well as these viral campaigns that were triggered by it. And that eventually generated activism and change. Um, the point is to highlight the importance of consequence and consequences of representation, right? So it's something that is very critical, but also it offers optimis- optimism. So I'm being very pragmatic, right? Telenovelas are not going anywhere. Yes, there's a lot of bad things associated with them, uh, but there's also good things. So, you know, investigating possibilities and concrete examples in a way that highlights the importance of representation, um, as well as um, opportunities that they offer for public debate, for participation, for emancipation, for change. Um, Okay, for the, the itching telenovela watcher in you (laughs) the other part of your question um i'm able to keep up with brazilian programming through the internet in several ways so you know i follow kind of specific accounts on instagram but also through media portals um it's fairly easy to watch um to to subscribe to channels in in Brazil and watch them online. But it's also fairly easy to add it to a cable or a satellite um, subscription. I won't name any names, but we can talk about it. Thank you for that. That sounds great. I'm going to have to um, get up to date with my, with these Instagram accounts as well. And with the, the, um, the the cable subscription, um, which is also which has come a long way since when I first went to Brazil, which I don't think that was available in in the early two thousands. So that's uh, that's good to hear that you know that it's easier to to stay up to date with what's going on on Brazilian television now. Um, and so you mentioned this before. You compare the telenovela Second Son, which I think came out in twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, um, to the telenovela uh, Two Faces or Duas Caras from two thousand seven, and you note these similarities and differences between these telenovelas. And um, in reading, I was struck by the similarities between some of the situations where you have these like racist, rich white families meeting. For example, in the book, the daughters of their black boyfriends for dinner, like there, there are these very like similar kinds of parallels between the two telenovelas. And so I wondered, um, like, what, what do you make of these similarities and, and even the differences um, between these telenovelas and, and their representations of blackness? So I think in many ways, unfortunately, scripted media messages. So I'm, I'm including advertisements, TV, film, they still heavily rely on common tropes of storytelling in general, right? This makes sense in a capitalist market, 
right? Because to recycle tried and true formulas that are very profitable is kind of the go-to, right? Um, and the more we communicate globally, the more reach that these productions have, the more such stories are part of this repertoire that is shared and borrowed from. Um, but this is the true of many types of stories, right? Any um, love story or a good versus evil cowboys. I, I won't say Star Wars because I don't want any hate. <laughs> but, you know, these are formulas. Uh, but in the specific case of these telenovelas, um, where there's a lot of tension with interracial love stories, for example, at, a, at this intimate dinner, right? Um, I think we can see two things. One is the literal narrative of the 67 film, Look Who's Coming to Dinner, right? Which it has been told in many languages, many times throughout the world. But more importantly, I think it's because racism, racism is still a lingering problem. And such situations reflect that. And especially um, when it's done in that setting that we can recognize, right? Coming to your house and possibly being a part of your family. Uh, I think it, it, it makes for good stories, but it, it is also part of everyday stories in real life. Thank you. So my, um, I guess, second to last question is, um, why do you think it's important to think about how telenovelas open up spaces um, to talk about race, uh, race, racism, and representation of Black characters? So the simple answer is because representation matters, right? Um, and as far as telenovelas and my kind of daily struggle with talking about telenovelas, which a lot of people think, you know, who cares about telenovelas? Um, so, you know, it makes sense to the general population to talk about blockbuster movies like The Black Panther, for example, right? But for a non-telenovela audience, um, it, it doesn't seem like this is a product that's worthy of examination um, or even a critical right stance. But it's a powerful genre that reaches millions of people worldwide every day. Um, so as I show in the book, the link between the telenovela and its audience is best described as interactive. So it's not a passive watching experience, right? The impact that telenovelas have on viewers is matched by the impact that viewers have on them. Um, so in the book, I'm making this play on words with Stuart Hall's concept of an active audience who is able to draw meanings from a text. And I, I go from being active to becoming activists um, and actually being able to ignite not only debate, but social change in a positive way. Um, so they are a place for debate and for bridging this gap, right, between private and public spheres. Um, it, it has persisted for years. They've been going on for 70 years in Brazil, right? They, they won't slow down. Um, the, the genre is alive and well financially, economically, in popularity. Um, TV Global, you know, you can't, I play with my students about, I always compare um, a day in, a, in the media 
as far as TV as being tied up to the clock, right? You you have only so many, you know, things you can show in 24 hours. And, you know, TV Global has three or four telenovelas a day. And now uh, with Global Play, they actually have telenovelas that are made just for that platform. Um, and so they're not going anywhere. Um of course, you know, the 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 financial and economic success of telenovelas are great characteristics of a, a thriving capitalist product. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, in a very pragmatic way of looking at things, my book shows that, yes, telenovela texts are still vital and they are a vibrant space for examining racism and the representation of Blacks, as well as encounters with such representational texts. Um, They are a place for igniting debate, for questioning matters of race, of identity, um, and for producing social change. Great. So yeah, telenovelas really do matter. And um, sometimes I think that, you know, maybe in the United States, we we could learn some things as well by from those telenovelas in in Brazil. Um, you know, I think there, there there can be an exchange, right? I think that um, the vibrancy of the genre in Brazil is really is really fascinating because it's it's not something that we can necessarily say as you as you mentioned with soap operas here. Um, that's that's always happening. Um, so thank you so much for, for that discussion. And so I was wondering, um, now that the book is out um, with, with the, the book Afro-Brazilians and Telenovelas, what projects are you currently working on or do you have coming up next? So I'm thinking about a couple of different projects. Um, they're both in a preliminary stage. Uh, but the first project I have, which is the one that I'm working I've started work on is a historical book about Brazilian television, broadly speaking. So not just telenovelas. Um, It would be very loosely based on Lynn Spiegel's Make Room for TV. Um, And so the idea is to trace the inception of TV in Brazil and then highlight some pivotal moments in scripted TV, Um, like telenovelas, but also in journalism and other types of shows. But again, looking at how everything fits together with the political, social, economic zeitgeist. Um, This is very ambitious, and I am thinking about it in terms of an edited volume. So I have started a a conversation with a, a research partner, and we're thinking about, you know, all of these um, different chapters that may may converge together in in the in in my mind a very complete um book because there's really not much in the english language about this um and so i think it would open up you know research and 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 you know a lot of a lot it would open up knowledge about it um it will be a historical piece um and i i would like to have them all these things converge in one space. So chapters would be something like, you know, the inception of television in Brazil in the 50s and, and late 60s, you know, controlling that television with military coup, um, but also like looking at media and democracy. And I'm also very interested in um, 
moments of rupture in Brazilian television, especially as far as established media channels. So thank you. I have read your book and look for an email coming up soon because <laughs> there can't be a book like this without talking about TV da Gente, which is, you know, your research. Um, I'm not kidding, you know, look for that. <laughs> um, and then the second project I have is more of a pet project. Um, it's just something that, as I said, I'm very curious. And so um, it's something that came about out of actually watching Second Son. Thinking about writing a book about the history and legacy of capoeira and the representation of capoeira in media. Um, so I, I discuss capoeira in the book. For those who don't know, it's an Afro-Brazilian art of resistance that mixes dance and a deadly martial art that was first used by enslaved people in Brazil as a survival um, tool and, you know, self-emancipation and, and freedom technique. And actually in 2014, it was in, inscribed by UNESCO's list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Um, it was used in interesting ways in Segundo Sol, especially as this marker of blackness. So it did spark some questions that I want to explore further. I am a capoeira enthusiast and a player. Um, and I want to just research the topic further. Whenever I see it um, in U.S. media, it's done in a way that's comical and, you know, not just not good. <laughs> so that's something that I'd love to explore further. So these are the things that I'm hoping to get started on soon. Yeah, that sounds great. And I will we'll look forward to the to, to both projects, but also to the to the first one, certainly with the changes in uh, in Brazilian television. And I would ha be happy to, <laughs> to to get the email and and you know, participate in any way I can. Um, and so, and I wish you like best wishes on these projects. It sounds like they're continuing this idea of social change in the media, which you've, you know, demonstrated in these um, previous two books, which we talked about today. So um, I know that uh, listeners will be excited to read the book Afro-Brazilians and telenovelas and, um, and they can read more about Capoeira and Candomblé also in the book, which we didn't really get to talk about in the interview. So um, that will be Great. Um, so I've been listening to or speaking with Dr. Samantha Nogueira Joyce, who's the author of the book Afro-Brazilians and Telenovelas, Social, Political and Economic Realities, published by Lexington Books. Thank you so much, Samantha, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you. It was such a pleasure.